This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Later, I will be joined by Aaron Bastani. And we do have a jam-packed show for you this evening. Um, Coming up later, really worrying story. So Egypt is preparing a refugee camp close to the Gaza border in advance of Israel's ground offensive in Rafa. So something we've been worried about for a long time. Um, Palestinians getting pushed um, into Egypt. The Egyptians now seem to think that's likely or at least worth preparing for. Um, There have been by-elections in Britain and things look really bad um, for Rishi Sunak. They suffered, or the Tories suffered, two by-election defeats. And also in the UK, a new poll has for the first time uh, suggested the Green Party could be set to pick up their second ever MP. On to our first story. Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny has died in a Russian jail. Navalny had already survived an attempted poisoning by nerve agent in 2020, and since 2021 has been locked in or had been locked in Russian jails on trumped-up criminal charges. He died in a penal colony in Siberia. According to the prison service, these were the circumstances of Navalny's death. Navalny felt unwell after a walk and almost immediately lost consciousness. All necessary resuscitation measures were carried out, but did not yield positive results. The paramedics confirmed the death of the convict. Now, this statement will not dissuade many from the belief that Navalny's death amounts to a political assassination of the most effective internal opponent of Vladimir Putin's regime. This was the BBC's obituary for Alexei Navalny. For years, Alexei Navalny was a thorn in the side of the Kremlin. A lawyer by training, he started out as an anti-corruption blogger. But he shot to prominence in 2011 during protests over parliamentary elections tainted by allegations of fraud. The demonstrations were the largest Russia had seen for years. Navalny was arrested, suddenly emerging as a significant opposition figure. His charismatic presence on the streets soon made him a regular target of the authorities. Alexei Navalny was a strong nationalist, but also a fierce critic of Russia's powerful elites. He developed a huge following on social media, publishing regular investigations into high-level corruption. His popular YouTube channel, with its slick videos, was full of allegations against prominent figures. What we are seeing now is that the internet is the number one concern for the current regime, and its number one enemy too. His revelations led to official harassment. His offices searched, he and his staff detained. In 2017, he was attacked with green dye, causing damage to his right eye. The following year, he was barred from running for president, manhandled and arrested at a demonstration in Moscow. And in 2020, he was poisoned, falling ill on a flight from Siberia. He was evacuated to Germany for treatment. International chemical weapons experts found traces of the nerve agent Novichok. Navalny survived and accused Vladimir Putin of trying to have him killed. Five months later, Navalny returned to Russia, only to be thrown in jail once more. Protests erupted across the country, fueled in part by publication of yet another video, accusing Russia's president of corruption. 
Despite a hunger strike and international pressure, Navalny remained behind bars, designated a terrorist and sentenced to long years in prison. Alexei Navalny leaves behind a wife, daughter and son, and a country where opposition has been utterly stifled. The BBC there somewhat brushed over the extent of Navalny's nationalist past. In 2007, Navalny released a video in favour of gun rights, um, in which Muslims were compared to cockroaches, and the suggestion was that they needed to be exterminated. It's an incredibly grim video. Um, but Navalny's principal legacy is as a campaigner against corruption and someone who took extraordinary personal risks in the face of political repression. After being poisoned in 2020, he returned to Russia knowing it would lead to his imprisonment. And 48 hours after his arrival in Russia, and with Navalny already behind bars, he released a video prepared in Berlin where he had been treated for his poisoning. So the film, I mean, outlined Putin's history of corruption, exposing how he had enriched himself in his long political career. And it showed images of what Navalny claimed was a palace built for Putin's use. The documentary estimated the cost of the palace to be over $1 billion, and Putin denied the palace was built for his use. The film clocked up 129 million views. This was a really, really effective and successful um, campaign in Russia against corruption. To discuss the circumstances of Navalny's death and its potential consequences, I spoke earlier to Jeremy Morris. Um, he's a professor of global studies at Aarhus University in Denmark and an expert on Russia. I started by asking him whether we can be sure this was an assassination. No, of course, we can never be sure one way or the other. Clearly, there is um, the, the regime has has an interest in completely physically removing Navalny from the picture before the presidential elections in a month's time. But the worst possible assumption to make is that uh, having an incentive to do something means that the regime did it. The first thing that came to my mind was that being in a Russian prison in the far north, being a political prisoner, um, is uh, essentially a death sentence. It doesn't necessarily take um, murderous intent by anybody with access to him for the outcome to be his death. One thing that seems confounding on that, because I see, you know, he's been sent to a jail in Siberia. Sort of when I first heard about his death, you know, I imagined him being very, you know, un unwell for a long time, perhaps. Um, but we're going to show you, uh, oh, we're going to show the audience this clip. Many people have seen it already. It's of Navalny only yesterday appearing in court. <laughs> That was a clip of Navalny in court. He's sort of joking about the ridiculousness, really, of, of the Russian criminal justice system. The officials are laughing along with him. I suppose my first thought is, you know, why does this video exist? You know, if, if it were the case that the Russian... Um, government or whoever wanted him dead? Why would this video exist of him looking fairly healthy the day before? Um, why are the officials laughing along with Navalny as he jokes about sort of the, the ridiculousness of the criminal justice system? I'm, I'm somewhat confused um, by this clip, as you might be able to, to gather. Could you sort of ex explain what's going on here for me? 
The fact that these clips exist is because his lawyers and the media record the clips of the the, the, the video link, um, the video links when he appears in court. And in a sense, you know, why is he? We also need to like link this to why is he so far away um, in the first place? Because essentially, the regime is afraid of um, afraid of him and afraid of the support that that he has. But then that leads to your your question: you know, why would they then um, potentially risk uh, the, the fallout with him being killed? And as you said, he looks to be in reasonable health, as, as, as reasonable as one could be in, in those circumstances. So it just, again, it just points to the um, necessity of avoiding jumping to conclusions. It's impossible to know what his actual state of health was. It's impossible to know um, how the prison itself would have taken precautions to protect him or, on the contrary, expose him to um, an assassin. For me, it doesn't change anything. Um, we can't know and we're unlikely to know. What does it mean for, for Vladimir Putin? I suppose on the one hand, you know, this will just be even more chilling for anyone who's considering opposing his rule. At the same time, I mean, could this prompt any kind of backlash? I mean, he's already isolated sort of in the international community among those countries who would sort of really care about the killing of Navalny. Um, will there be people within Russia who sort of say now is the time to to stand up and be counted? Or you know, how, how will this be felt? The effect is in the regime's favour. It just makes people... And, and again, one could almost say that leaving it ambiguous, allowing people to believe what they want, serves the regime regardless of, of that belief, right? So if you believe that going to prison is a death sentence because of the, the toll it would take on your, on your health, then again, the regime is happy. If people believe that he was murdered, again, the regime is happy because it shows, well, we're going to deal from the regime's perspective, it sends the message, we're going to deal with any opposition, however slight, However, however much, however marginalized that opposition has become, we will deal with it in the most ruthless and violent way. And that's why I linked it to potentially tying up loose threads, dotting I's and crossing T's before the presidential election, a wholesale clamp down on all or on the very small remnants of visible, um, courageous opposition that still exist. So there was an academic, um, a left-wing academic, who was imprisoned um, on extremely flimsy uh, evidence and uh, to make a political point, he's a political prisoner. And again, we should underline that. Navalny is also a political prisoner. And now we're seeing a turn, a kind of a, an ex a kind of a broadening to the left and the right of the political spectrum. So if Navalny was very much uh, a talisman of the liberal opposition and no friend really to the left, we see at the same time the imprisoning of uh, one of the most prominent ultra-nationalist uh, bloggers um, and the imprisoning, as I said, of a left-wing academic just, just last week and uh, a raid on an extremely marginal um, Marxist group 
in 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 Moscow um, just this week as well. So we can see that all of these things kind of work to the same purpose, which is it doesn't matter what your politics are, uh, there can be no alternative to uh, getting behind the the regime, and you know basically everybody should just vote in the election and quieten down and let Putin get on with it. That's that's the message that's being broadcast. And if you put your head above the parapet, it's going to get chopped off. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the low, lowliest cell of Marxist intellectuals or this very talismatic, talisma, talismanic, um, charismatic uh, leader that actually had a shot of really um, standing against successfully, potentially, some people think he could have stood uh, if he'd been allowed to um, against Putin and really kind of um, ridden on a, a, an upswell of opposition to Putin. How should we understand Navalny's legacy when it comes to, to politics? I mean, I've seen lots of people sort of on, on Twitter today confused how to feel, you know, because this is a guy who's clearly displayed immense personal bravery, um, clearly had a very good point when he's sort of railing against Putin's corruption. At the same time, you know, in 2007, he's got a video where he's sort of referring to Muslims as cockroaches and sort of suggesting they need to be exterminated. It's a really dark stuff. So, I mean, how, uh, at the time of his death, you know, w- what was the meaning of Navalny politically in Russia? The liberal opposition, which represents um, the hopes of a large number of urban, educated, middle class, relatively young people, are going to be shocked and terribly, terribly upset by this. We should not romanticize what he represented, though. He represented um, many, many good things, which is, as you said, um, principled uh, opposition, personal responsibility. Um, But essentially, he was never able to really speak to uh, a group beyond this relatively narrow uh, urban middle class uh, group, right? So people say, well, he he was re- he was turning towards social populism. He um, he un- he understood that he needed to appeal to a wider kind of coalition in society, um, and perhaps if he'd been allowed to continue, um, if he hadn't been put in prison, that that might have happened. But essentially, we know what his beliefs were, and his beliefs were that if we allow fair elections, that will get rid of corruption, um, that will allow the, in his eyes, the sensible majority of liberals to take over and um, Russia would become a, a better place. But of course, from where, I, from where I'm sitting and where from, from where most Russians are sitting, that comes across as, at best, naive. And at worst, almost just a uh, a kind of um, whitewashing of the whole nineties, right? Where essentially you have wholesale wholesale looting of the economy in the interests of a tiny, tiny um, connected uh, elite that basically reinvent themselves, right? People with connections in the Communist Party become the new elite. And so, in a sense, even though Navalny is not coming from that, his rhetoric 
didn't cut through because he was never able to address the genuine social social justice concerns um, around inequality that are far more fundamental than what many people believed um, was his main message, which was corruption, get rid of corruption. I can get rid of corruption because I'm honest. Rightly or wrongly, they were never able to link that to the core concerns that many, if not most, Russian people have, which is why, if we live in such a rich country, uh, are so many people incredibly poor? And in a sense, this this question and the answer to this question is is also connected to the war in Ukraine, right? So Navalny was not able to answer that question, and Putin is also not able to answer that question. And let's go straight on to our next story. Labour have claimed two by-election victories, overturning big Conservative majorities in both seats. In Kingswood, Labour's Damien Egan claimed 45% of the vote, overturning a Conservative majority of over 11,000. Conservative candidate Sam Bromley took 35%. That by-election was triggered by the resignation of Tory MP Chris Skidmore. He quit in January over Rishi Sunak's bill to allow new oil and gas licences to be issued in the North Sea. The other by-election last night in Wellingborough was an even more impressive victory for Labour. And that's considering the Tories previously held a majority of over 18,000. Labour's Jen Kitchen won 46% of the vote, whilst the Conservatives were left with just 25%. That's a whopping 28.5% swing. Now, the extent of Labour's success in Wellingborough could have had something to do with the circumstances which triggered that by-election. Tory MP Peter Bone lost his seat after an inquiry found that he had subjected a staff member to bullying and sexual misconduct. To add insult to injury, the by-election candidate that the Tories put forward was none other than Bone's partner, Helen Harrison. However, Keir Starmer has offered a different rationale for Labour's win. Here he is taking a victory lap on BBC Breakfast. We're very pleased with those results. These were huge swings to Labour. The Wellingborough one was the second biggest swing uh, in a by-election since the Second World War. So this is a very significant swing. I think there is a message now from these by-elections. We had a number of them last year, as you remember. I think the country is crying out for change. Everybody knows that things aren't working. Um, their NHS isn't working. They've got a cost-living crisis. I think they've concluded that the Tories have failed after 14 years. They can see now the Labour Party has changed. It's a different party to the party in 2019. Uh, and they can see that we've got the answers to their problems. And I was very pleased last night to see that we were clearly getting Tory switches. In other words, people who hadn't voted for the Labour Party before coming out last night and voting for the Labour Party in a by-election. And I, I think that vindicates, if you like, or is evidence. But I would say this, particularly to my team, there is more work to do. There is always more work to do. Um, you know, there's a long way to go before this election. And as every football fan knows, you don't win the league by a good win in February. I'm not sure if you ask the general public, they would answer that Labour has the answer to their problems. Um, but nonetheless, these were good results for Labour, undeniably. And they are very bad results for the Tories. Um, Rishi Sunak has given a suitably defeatist interview to the press. 
Midterm by-elections are always difficult for incumbent governments and the circumstances of these by-elections were, of course, particularly challenging. Now, I think if you look at the results, very low turnout, and it shows that we've got work to do to show people that we are delivering on their priorities, and that's what I'm absolutely determined to do, but also shows that there isn't a huge amount of enthusiasm for the alternative in Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, and that's because they don't have a plan. And if you don't have a plan, you can't deliver real change. And when the general election comes, that's the message I'll be making to the country stick with our plan because it is starting to deliver the change that the country wants and needs. So it's a somewhat, I think, pathetic excuse from the Conservatives because he's basically saying, yes, we did really bad. We lost, you know, dramatically. But the team we lost to aren't very good either. Now, if the team you lost to aren't very good either, that's really bad for you, right? If you, lo if you lose to Real Madrid, right, maybe you're decent. If you lose to Watford, I don't know, maybe they're good at the moment. I've got no idea. Uh, I'm, my sort of football analogies are less convincing than Keir Starmer's, aren't they? But if you lose to a shit team, um, that makes you look even worse. So to sort of stand there and say, yes, they completely rejected us. We were completely obliterated. But the people who obliterated us, well, they're not that good either. It uh, seems a bit pathetic to me. Um, another result from those by-elections that should have the Tories rattled is Reform UK's performance. Their candidate took 10% in Kingswood and 13% in Wellingborough. And Reform have been clear that they don't care about taking Conservative votes, even if that helps Labour. Here's party leader Richard Tice reiterating that message on Times Radio. You can't reward failure with more incumbency. And the Tories, frankly, they, given what they've done to the country and breaking the country, they deserve to be punished, and I think they will be punished, and quite right too. Look, equally, Starmageddon is what I call the disaster that uh, the Labour will inflict on the country, and our policies, I believe, are the policies that will save Britain. So they're both forms of, the two main parties are forms, forms of socialism, high taxes, wasteful government spending, massive obsession with net zero, all of which will bankrupt the country. Aaron, uh, welcome to the show. What is your takeaway from these by-election results? Well, there's a few takeaways, Michael, and then none of them are very good for the Conservative Party. The first one is, and it's not really been mentioned very much, is just how badly the Liberal Democrats do. They lose their deposit both times. Now, that's partly because they're not particularly inspiring, but I think it's also partly because people are doing the thing we always hear about in elections, but it very rarely happens, just strategically voting. Um, we saw that in various by-elections where they won and the Labour vote switched Lib Dem. And now we're seeing it in big Labour wins and the Lib Dems en masse are voting for Labour. That's the first thing. You're seeing strategic voting, which, by the way, is a, a major reason why the majority in 97 is, is so big. Without it, it wouldn't be quite so large. Secondly, you have reform, like you say, 10% in Kingswood, 13% in Wellingborough, they over um, they overachieved in Kingswood. I think they probably expected actually slightly more in Wellingborough, frankly. But what it does mean is that these polls, putting them nationally at say ten percent, aren't complete pie in the sky. They're now they're they're real. They're a real political not force, but phenomenon. Um, and if you look at um, Kingswood, the margin that, that was the difference between the the Labour Party and the Conservatives, actually the vote for reform was bigger. Now, that doesn't mean that all the reform voters were ex-Tories, but clearly, if you want to win that back in a general election, that seat won't exist. But hypothetically, if you wanted to, you would want to win a fair number of those reform voters back. And what we know right now is, and it's at odds with what Keir Starmer said in that interview on the BBC, is that right now, the Tories are losing, obviously, a bunch of votes. And in terms of the votes they're lo losing to other parties, it's basically a one-to-one -one ratio, according to opinion polling by opinion, 
It's basically a one-to-one ratio of one to labor, one to reform. Now, that, that suits labor just fine, but it's not exactly a ringing endorsement either. The idea that, oh, we're having huge numbers of Tory voters come over from you know, the dark side in 2019 and, and coming to us. It's a mix of Tories staying at home um, or intending to stay at home. That's more from the polling than the by-election results, because of course, by-election results aren't that indicative in so much as turnout's much lower, uh, going to reform, going to Labour, and that strategic voting. And just to be clear, the result in Wellingborough, Michael, I was covering this overnight, is dynamite. You know, if anything, actually, Kingswood was slightly okay for the Tories. Um, But Wellingborough was an 18,000 majority. Labour just got almost twice as many votes as the Conservatives. It's the second best result for Labour in a by-election since 1945, I believe. Uh, The swing was just absolutely extraordinary. If the swing that you see in Wellingborough was repeated at a national level, I think the Tories get something, you know, less than something like 20 seats. Not happening, but still rather amusing. So you're looking really at a bunch of phenomenon right now where everything is going Labour's way. Lib Dem tactical voting, the Reform Party eating into uh, the Tories, and finally, not mentioned here, but of course, Scotland. The SNP have had problems that probably couldn't have been predicted three, four years ago around um, Nicola Sturgeon and whatnot. Now, Labour might not win the most seats in Scotland. Polling doesn't really show that, but they're going to pick up a fair few seats in Scotland. So things are looking very good for Starmer. And like you say, the Tories can make this bizarre remark, frankly, that it's not an endorsement for the Labour Party. Uh, But if you've just lost your, uh, if you've just suffered rather, your second worst by-election defeat to uh, the Labour Party since 1945, and they're not very good, what does that say about you? Um, I would would suggest it's, it's not good reading, Michael. The cope from the Tories, and I haven't really, I mean, I haven't even heard many of them sort of even put this forward, they seem to just be not really saying anything today. But if you wanted to find cope for the Tories, you'd say, well, these were, you know, by-elections are always low turnout, but these were low turnout even for by-elections. And they say when a general election comes around, people will realise the stakes are higher and people who did a protest vote for reform in the by-election will come back to the Tories and people who stayed at home will come back to the, will, you know, will realise this is important and, and vote Tory. I think that relies on a premise that there are a lot of voters who are terrified of a Labour government. And if you look at this Labour Party, right, one of the one of their achievements, I think, is that they haven't scared many people. It's come at the cost of not having any dramatic policies, which are in any way different from the Conservatives. But I can't see why, if you're a, a voter who stayed at home in in Wellingborough, you're going to say, "Well, now this is the general election, and we really can't afford to have Keir Starmer in power." Because what's there to be afraid of, right? That L- Labour's strategy is to be seems to have been to not really offer anything, um, show that you're not scary like the last leader and wait for the Tories to collapse. And luckily for them, the Tories, you know, did more than collapse, you know, they completely imploded. Um, So I I can't see why this would change at the next general election. Clearly, what we're going to see between now and then is the Tories try and leak loads of stories about how terrifying the Labour Party are, but I just, I don't see it sticking. Uh, Maybe I'll be proved wrong. Um, As we say, the by-election results are incredibly bad for the Tories. And the national picture is looking even worse. So a new bombshell poll from Electoral Calculus projects that Labour will gain 252 seats, bringing them a total of 452. According to their model, the Conservatives are set to lose 292 seats, leaving them with just 80. Now, this would be a very dramatic result. Um, It would, of course, see the departure of a slew of cabinet ministers. This is an MRP poll, so it's a, a new method or relatively new, it's been used to successfully predict the outcome of the last two general elections. It also gives a closer idea of what to expect in each 
particular seat. And one seat of interest here is the newly created constituency of Bristol Central. The MRP poll suggests the Greens would gain this seat from Labour's Shadow Culture Secretary, Fangham Debonair. So her current seat is Bristol West. Most of it will become part of Bristol Central. I mean, it has the Greens winning over 50% of the vote, which would give the Greens their second ever Westminster seat. Obviously, Aaron, you know, we're not particularly infused by Keir Starmer. I don't think really any of our audience are. But so if you're just looking at the parties, right, if you say Labour get a whopping majority, Greens increase the number of their seats, you know, that that looks like, you know, there's quite a decent election result, isn't it, for the left? If you're on the left, but you're sceptical of Keir Starmer, which is, I think, <laughs> much of our audience, um, you, you'd say, OK, well, look, majority of 30, 40 and the Greens pick up seats uh, is probably good. We might get, you know, a proportional representation. But equally, you know, the, the Conservative Party being crushed, being crushed, which is, by the way, what the Reform Party want to do. That was remarkable, actually, Michael, before I talk about the Greens. You know, overnight, you had Ben Habib on the television. You had Anne Whittacombe saying they don't want to do a deal with the Tories. You know, in the words of Ben Habib, his word, we want to obliterate the Conservative Party. So this is not a pressure group. To, 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 to get some policy outcomes, to, you know, move away from net zero. They want to destroy the Conservative Party. That's what they're saying. And maybe it's a ruse. He seemed pretty convincing. Uh, so uh, that is, you know, park that for a moment. There are a bunch of people that want basically the Conservative Party to be destroyed. He had a great line. He said, you know, I'm in politics to destroy the Conservative Party. They got there first, which did make me chuckle, I have to say. Uh, you know, there is a world where the Labour Party has a massive majority. The Tories are absolutely hammered. The Greens pick up a second seat. Now, that might sound daft, but what it would also mean is they'd pick up probably a bunch, a bunch of second and third places. And they've always said to me when I've spoken to Green figures, whether that's Carla Denya, Sean Berry, uh, they've always said, look, we want five to 10 MPs by 2030. And that would be, that would be their direction of travel. And with the Green Party and with reform or prior to that, the Brexit Party, UKIP, you've got really two different theories of, of change. You know, reform is uh, seat of your underpants, you know, media finesse, lots of money, big donors, setting the agenda, lots of headlines. Um, and what do the Greens do? Deep organizing in one seat, two seats, three seats, four seats. And the jury's out about which one's better. In terms of a single issue, clearly. Uh, the UKIP and the Brexit Party strategy was very successful. In terms of building a new political party on the first past the post, okay, you probably want a bit of both, but the Green Party strategy, to me, seems a wise one. And, you know, there is a plausible scenario here where Labour win big in 2024, and actually the Greens will benefit from that in the medium to long term because people aren't satisfied with a Labour government thereafter. You know, again, we could see a world where after 2024, 2025, the Greens actually start targeting Labour seats in by-elections because people aren't happy with them, right? That's another phenomenon. You know, the Lib Dems, they've done very well in some by-elections. They will be very disappointed, I think, the Liberal Democrats, from the national polling, because there is a lot of disappointment out there with Labour. The Tory vote is collapsing, and they don't like to talk about it, but they have lots of Tory Lib Dem floating voters, particularly in the South and Southwest. And yet their national polling isn't that good. You know, reform a pot of polling ahead of them in a few polls, and of course, they lost two, um, two deposits last night, I think because of strategic voting, but also, you know, you, it adds up not really to a good story for them. So 
I don't think this is bad for the Greens if we say they win a second seat. And by the way, for them to keep Brighton when Caroline Lucas is stepping down is also a major accomplishment. It shows they're not a political party which is premised around a single personality, like the Brexit party was, say, with Farage. That's a major accomplishment. So I think it's very positive for the Greens. And I think, you know, roll on 2030 for them if they get that second seat uh, this year or potentially next January. If Greens get that seat in Brighton Pavilion, but as you say, the, the polling that shows they'll win Bristol Central also shows that they'll win Brighton Pavilion, and I think by a fairly comfy margin. Um, so yeah, decent for the Greens, terrible for the Conservatives. Let's go straight on to our next story. We've got a lot more to cover this evening. With a full-blown Israeli assault on Rafah imminent, Egypt has begun building a walled encampment in the Sinai Peninsula. Gaza borders the Sinai region, which is to its south, and clearing Palestinians into the Sinai has been a long-term aim of the Israelis since October the 7th. That ambition had seemed like a step too far for both Egypt and Israel's American backers, who believed expelling Palestinians from Gaza into Egypt would destabilize the region. Obviously, it's already destabilized, but they thought that would sort of cross a red line. But Egypt appears to be preparing for at least some Palestinians to cross that border. Satellite imagery released by Maxar Technologies shows that a significant area of land has been cleared on the Egyptian side of the border with Gaza. The NGO, Sinai Foundation for Human Rights, has released footage of a seven foot high concrete fence being built in the area. According to the Wall Street Journal, this would be the area of the enclosure in blue. You can see here they've marked out a buffer zone around the border with Gaza and the fortified camp being built would cover eight square miles. That's in red there. According to Egyptian officials who spoke to the Wall Street Journal, large numbers of tents as yet unassembled have been delivered to the site. They report the camp will have a capacity of 100,000 people, but that Egypt hopes to keep numbers crossing the border to below that figure. Egyptian authorities have not publicly acknowledged the construction of the camp, and it's believed it's not the product of a deal between the Israelis and the Egyptians, but rather the Egyptians making preparations for an outcome outside of their control. An Egyptian security analyst told the Wall Street Journal this, It's a multi-pronged effort from Egypt to counter any scenario that is not according to its accepted conditions. Even if the Israelis push a million and a half people to spill over the border, Egypt can throw the ball back into Israel's lap by simply limiting the movement of Palestinians further in. Really quite horrible sort of reading that. You're getting this, this sort of game of poker, which involves a lot of humans, a lot of desperate individuals in the middle of it. So sort of Egypt saying, you know, the Israelis, I think what they wanted to do was to force people to sort of break through the border with Egypt. And then if those people, you know, go into Egypt proper, um, then, you know, Egypt will feel under a lot of pressure to give them refugee status and then for them to stay there. I think Egypt thinks, well, if we block them all up in this compound, in this encampment in the Sinai, then this still remains sort of an international problem. Because once people have gone into Egypt, then that's facts on the grounds which, which have been changed. So I think, you know, this idea is you'll, you'll get these desperate Palestinians in this walled encampment, and then there'll be a standoff between different international players who's going to sort this out. The Wall Street Journal also spoke to a 32-year-old Palestinian woman who is currently displaced in Rafa. She told the paper this, you cannot imagine the terror and fear in the hearts of civilians here in Rafa. Some people are already on the Egyptian border, and if the bombing intensifies, they will go directly to Sinai. It's the worst of decisions. Just saying, terrible decision that people have to make.
Footage today has emerged of a car being hit by Israeli airstrike next to tents housing refugees in Rafah. I mean, you can see, I mean, we sort of said at at the beginning of this war, really early on, and I mean, you you heard this as well from sort of Israeli advisors, they were saying, what we want to do is basically clear out the Gaza Strip and push all these people into the Sinai, right? Ethnic cleansing, essentially. They wanted a deal initially with the Egyptians. So I think there was originally diplomacy. Can, Can you take all of these people? We'll give you some money. Egypt said no. They said no because it would be incredibly destabilizing to their country. One, because, you know, they would have been seen um, two Egyptians to have been collaborating with ethnic cleansing of of the Palestinians, sort of collaborating with with Israel, and two, it would be destabilizing to have lots of refugees who, you know, might want to continue the struggle against Israel. Quite understandably, right? So, for those two reasons, Egypt said no. Um, after that, we sort of discussed that potentially the plan was then to bunch Palestinians up close to the Rafah border and make life so intolerable that they end up sort of forcing their way through, um, and. That still kind of seems to be the plan, right? And Egypt is saying, well, if that happens, we want to have a backup. And the backup is where we round people up into this, you know, pen with seven foot concrete walls. Aaron, very grim. And it, you know, it does seem like lots of the the worst case scenarios, let's say, that people were discussing as this war got going, they're all still on the table. There, there doesn't seem to have been an outcome which is so grim that the Israelis have decided, oh no, we've got to rule that one out. Everything seems to be on the table for them. That's right. And we've been saying this right from the off, Michael, that the plan here is, is to displace as many Palestinians as possible. Maybe not all of them, but as many as possible. You know, The plan really, in a sentence, is to have as much land with as few Palestinians in it as possible. That's been really the plan since Plan Dalet in the mid to late 1940s. Uh, which was the base of the Nakba, and it's the it's the plan now. It is the plan, um, and this is not a conspiracy theory. You know, there was a conference in Jerusalem recently. I think about a third of the Israeli cabinet was there. People were openly saying we need to send two million people to Europe, and they'll go via Egypt. They said that. They said England and Scotland. They openly said it. You know, you, you, this is not uh, intrepid investigative journalism by Navarra Media. It's us watching you know clips of the conference on Channel Four News. Uh, so this is this is a big part of the plan to displace people. And some people I've spoken to who are pretty knowledgeable about Egypt's Israeli relations, they think, frankly, that there may be a quid pro quo where if the Israelis destroy the border crossing, Egypt accepts them. Who knows? But they can't be seen to be taking them in voluntarily for the reasons you say, geopolitically, diplomatically. Of course, also, there is the economic dimension. You know, Egypt has 35% inflation, um, has no money. It's broke. This is a country of 100 million people, no natural resources in terms of energy, um, no hydrocarbons, obviously very fertile because of the Nile, uh, the Nile Basin and whatnot, but no, no hydrocarbons. Uh, huge political volatility would result from 2 million plus Palestinians going into Egypt. And of course, they would settle in Sinai and you would still have some kind of resistance movement. That's inevitable. When you displace people, you get resistance movements. That is uh, as, as sure as night follows day. At which point you, of course, have the IDF potentially attacking Sinai, bombing Sinai, drone striking Sinai, which is Egyptian soil. Um, Again, if you're Egypt, you don't want that. So there would have to be some massive incentives for the Egyptians, even if they were particularly cynical and depraved, to enable this, which are kind of unthinkable. Although some people have put that to me. 
it is, I think, a very real possibility that those people that are displaced to Egypt then subsequently come to Europe, as I already said. There was a great quote in the Financial Times really at the start of this thing. I think it was at the end of October, where an Egyptian diplomat said, and this was, you know, a source said this to the Financial Times, uh, an Egyptian diplomat said, if, if Israel forces them to come here, we will send them to you because you are the people that are arming them, enabling them. It's not our problem. Um, and finally, you know, there is this meme saying, well, all these Arab countries exist, you know, stretching all the way from Morocco on the Atlantic all the way through to Iraq and, you know, Yemen and the, the south of the Arabian Peninsula. All these Arab countries exist. Why won't they take them? Uh, well, firstly, of course, that's a ridiculous argument for, for ethnic cleansing and genocide. Uh, but secondly, you know, it's very bizarre that the same people that make that argument also say that we should shut the borders and not allow refugees into this country. Um, but, you know, we haven't praised conservatives on this show many times for being intellectually coherent. Uh, but this is very much part of the agenda. And it has been right since the start of this war. We're not going to call it a campaign. It's a war. It's a continuation of a century-long war. And ethnic cleansing is a major part of how many people in Israel, within the Israeli government and establishment, want it to conclude. We're going to stick with Gaza for our next story. The Biden administration likes to say they want Israel to kill less Palestinians, but they keep giving Israel billions in unconditional military aid. It's a situation that doesn't make sense. And Cenk Uger, who's mounting a primary challenge against Joe Biden, has released a powerful ad making that point. We get all the sandwich stuff for the kids' lunch. They don't like turkey anymore. Yeah, I know. What about the bananas? Yeah, I got them too. But, honey. What? You're going to have to put those eggs back. They don't like eggs anymore? No, they like eggs. But we have to set that $7 aside for killing Palestinians. What? I mean, don't we give Israel $4 billion a year anyways? Yeah, and now we're giving them another $14 billion. Do you know how much that is per American taxpayer? No. It's like $85 per person. Apparently it's costing us a lot of money to drop bombs on Gaza. It's terrible. Yeah. Don't they get universal health care too? Yeah, they do. We're paying for that too, probably. Might as well put the bananas back. Why the f do we have to pay for all of this? Don't cuss at me. I'm Jank Uger, and I approve this message. Let's save lives together at jankforamerica.com. Now, I think that's a smart and effective advert, right? I mean, it probably is the case. You know, the amount of money that is sent to Israel is not going to be that significant in terms of the American public, right? The, the American budget is, is, is ginormous. Why I really like that advert is because it wasn't about defending Israel. So you might hear this argument, and I mean, this is the sort of argument that Trump puts forward quite a lot. Why should we... Um, waste our money, you know, he'd say defending, you know, Western Europe or Eastern Europe against Russia, for example. Um, and it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's an America first argument. And, you know, Jenks' advert is consistent with America first, but the emphasis was on this is money being used to kill Palestinians, right? And I think that framing of the the funds that the United States sends to Israel is really important because when this is talked about in the, in the mainstream media, obviously this is defense funding um, or defense aid to, to the Israelis so that they can defend themselves. And you know, as we've talked about so much on this show, this is a genocidal war. The Israelis aren't trying to defend themselves against Palestinians. They're trying to clear Gaza of Palestinians. The means by which they're doing that is making 
Gaza so unlivable that they hope that people will break through um, the Rafa crossing and into Egypt, never to return, right? And how do you make it incredibly unlivable? You kill shed loads of people, right? I mean, it's classic ethnic cleansing, right? You, you kill lots of people as a threat to say, well, you don't really want to live here now, do you? It's incredibly dangerous. Why don't you leave? Right? So, so that's what America's military aid to Israel is doing. And I think it was you know, brave and effective for that campaign ad from Jenk to sort of say it like it is. Yeah, this money is going to Israel so they can kill Palestinians. It's got nothing to do with Israel defending itself. It has everything to do with them killing, murdering innocent civilians because they want their land. Let's go on to our next story. Two more to get through this evening. Yanis Varoufakis is a former Greek finance minister, a Marxist academic, and a good friend of Navarra Media. And he's got a new documentary coming out. This week, my colleague Ash Sarkar sat down with Yanis and the film's director, Raul Martinez, for a chat about the film. That's coming up after this trailer. Debt is to capitalism that which hell is to Christianity. Unpleasant and essential. We are in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. The sacrifices of the Greek people will bring the country back to prosperity. The 2008 crisis was not one of the normal periodic downturns. It is the longest damage-inducing crisis in the history of capitalism. I could feel that the tsunami was coming, the result being the modern world that we live in. We were negotiating with financial terrorism, creditors who did not want their money back. Every asset of the Greek state was bundled together. This was a hidden bailout, and we were collateral damage. They want our properties, they want our homeland. Austerity is another term for class war. Orchestrated attempt of economic aggression. It cannot be described in any other way. I could see Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, getting very agitated. He gets the floor. Elections cannot be allowed to change economic policy. It became a massive battle to prevent the public ever from finding out. Uh, I've never listened to such an inaccurate report. This is what an oligarchy does when an oligarchy gets threatened. Like David and Goliath, they had to get rid of me. The landline rings. If you want your son to continue to return safely every night, you better lay off. And he mentioned a particular bank. We're being dragged into a labyrinth. They had to find ways of violating their own rules. It is Wall Street who's our enemy. Our regulators became enablers. All you can talk about is fairy tales of economic growth. Anybody who does economics is a science is either a fool or is trying to fool you. We have seen an almost Newtonian revolution in the science of economics. It takes a small spark to ignite a revolutionary moment. Either we move beyond capitalism or we die. Hello, I'm here with Yanis Varoufakis and Raul Martinez to talk about their new film, In the Eye of the Storm, The Political Odyssey of Yanis Varoufakis. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. I feel like you guys are here to, you know, promote a buddy cop movie. We've got the loose cannon, we've got the buy the book agent <laughs> sent from headquarters. What made you want to make this film with Yanis about this period of time, the Eurozone crisis? For years, I've been wanting to do a documentary on capitalism and economics generally. I just didn't quite know how to do it, what, what the best form would be. 
I'd seen how the language of economics had been weaponized to justify the unjustifiable, especially since uh, the 2010s and with austerity and, 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 you know, but not many people were joining the dots and seeing the underlying pattern. Um, that, of course, is the logic of capitalism, that it exploits labor, it, it exploits the planet. And I thought, okay, there is a space here for popularizing um, an economic, economics critique. And I, I kind of thought, okay, well, perhaps there's a way to hang this critique on a personal journey and have a narrator who has a gift for communication, has all the necessary expertise. And, of course, the story of Syriza and what happened in Greece itself just has this inherent drama to it. So, you know, Yanis was, for a, for a director, documentary director, he was a gift. We had, what, three to four hours a day in Athens in, in a dark room, and he, and he answered just... For a week. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for a week. Um, we pushed him hard, but, but, his, but, but he gave such fantastic interviews. And I started with the idea of just doing a single feature, and it expanded into a six-part series, just because what he managed to give was, was gold. I could see Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, getting very agitated. He gets the floor, and very quickly comes up with a classic line. Elections cannot be allowed to change economic policy. To which, of course, I retorted that this is excellent news for the Chinese Communist Party because they agree. Going back to the financial crisis, I was 16 in 2008. So my entire adult life has been defined by the financial crisis and its many, many consequences. Why was there no back to normal? Why was there no recovery, as you might understand that word? Capitalism has a tendency to create a sine wave, as we say in trigonometry, right? Ups and downs and ups and downs. So periods of uh, growth, and then a crisis, and then redemption, and uh, you know, recovery, and then another crisis. But every now and then, and in particular twice in its history, it went through a catastrophic collapse from which it never recovered uh, its mojo as it was before. That was 1929, and unfortunately for you and your generation, 2008, your generations, our generations, 1929. Uh, when something, you know, it's like the big one, the big earthquake, uh, which uh, then even if you rebuild the city, it will not be like it was before. That's how I saw 2008. And uh, unfortunately, and fortunately, because this is, you know, these, these are the ways of history, your generation has been condemned to never having the solace that your parents' generation had, that even if they went through a bout of unemployment, bout of bankruptcy, they lost their house, or, or you know, at least they could hope that within a reasonable frame of time, their kids, yeah. their grandkids, would have a better life than they did. That's no longer the case because capitalism, in my view, in 2008, met a crisis that uh, effectively killed it. In the same way that 1991 was the crisis that killed socialism and communism and social democracy, the great defeat of the left. 2008 was a great defeat of capitalism, but because we of the left were incapable uh, of uh, presenting your generation with an, a viable, credible alternative, the result is, um, remember what Rosa Luxemburg once said or asked, socialism or barbarism? 
Well, it's barbarism with, uh, you know, the bankers acquiring power that they never had before. And now we have big tech, what are called cloud capital, which um, is creating a new kind of feudalism. But this is not even capitalism anymore. So I think that this is what your generation is experiencing. And my generation, we are responsible for it. And how can people watch this film? Thank you for asking. Um, well, it's available right now. Um, if you go to eyeofthestorm.info, you can buy it directly from there. And in a few weeks, it will be available on Amazon and the rest. But we thought before, before we give Jeff Bezos his 40% cut, we're releasing it independently. Raul, Yanis, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. Thank and you. keep doing what you're doing at Novara Media. Support Novara Media and all the independent media. Uh, good message discipline from Yanis Varoufakis there. The full version of that conversation will be out on our channel soon. Um, so look out for that. Let's go on to our final story. Howard Jacobson is a prominent British novelist and journalist. He's Jewish and also a prominent supporter of Israel. And he's complained to the BBC about their coverage of the Gaza war. Oh, poor BBC. I love the BBC. I've watched BBC News for as long as there's been BBC News, and I've trusted it. I don't think it's had a very good war. I think it's been too inclined to disbelieve anything the Israeli army says. I'm not saying they have to agree with the Israeli army. I'm not saying they have to take sides. I'm not saying that what's on our screens isn't horrific. And if it's horrific, we need to see it. But do we need to see some of those images quite as often as we see them? The same image, as it were, or another version of it again and again. Some nights... Some would I... say yes. Hmm? Some would say yeah. Well, I would say... What you do when you do that is you virtually take a side. Some would say maybe there's only one side, but there's never only one side to an argument. It is agonising to see what's happening, but there are reasons for it and complex reasons for it. But more important than that is when, is when they have made a mistake, a very costly mistake sometimes, they've made a very bad job of apologising for it. They haven't apologised grandly enough. They haven't understood that when they say the Israelis have bombed a hospital, which the Israelis Israelis have not bombed, provably not bombed. They haven't taken into account that while that story has been, a, that while the lie, and there are enough lies that Jews have to deal with, why that lie, while that lie has been circulated, how many more anti-Semites have been made by that lie? And you know what happens if you're an anti-Semite once you're an anti-Semite for life? Now, sort of in that clip, in that argument, I assume Howard Jacobson was referring to the explosion at the Al Atli hospital that was at the start of the war. In fact, it's still very much disputed whether that was caused by a misfired rocket or Israeli artillery. But it doesn't really matter either way, because Israel then went on to attack every single hospital in Gaza. Every single hospital. Should the BBC not report that in case it creates, in his words, anti-Semites, right? And this was the most chilling part of his intervention. He complains, with reference to Palestinian casualties, that the BBC keeps showing, quote, the same image, as it were, or another version of it. Now, the BBC and the Western media in general has certainly not shown the same image of Palestinian suffering every day. But what we do see is different pictures, different images of different Palestinians who've been killed, who've been maimed, or who've been orphaned. Because there are new Palestinians being killed, maimed, or orphaned every single day. Presumably, though, to Howard Jacobson, once you've seen one orphaned Palestinian, one Palestinian family wiped out, or one Palestinian mother maimed. Well, you've seen them all. They are just another version of the same image. 
If you've seen one dead Palestinian, why do you need to see another? Completely chilling. Of course, I think the BBC should be showing more images of Palestinians who've been killed, right? Because this is happening every day. Howard Jacobson, you, you all, they already get the, they get the idea, right? The, Israel are killing lots of Palestinians. They get the idea. Do you, do you need to keep showing them? Aaron, I thought that was just phenomenal that someone felt comfortable going on television and, and making that argument. All of these images are essentially the same. You know, oh, I've, I've seen this image already. It's just another Palestinian who's been killed. Well, it's depraved, isn't it? And the point is that, presumably for this man, they are all the same. They're not individuals because they're not being viewed as fully human. I mean, that's the only explanation for that formulation of words, isn't it? Well, I've seen it once. I don't need to see it again. As if each person who's being killed doesn't have their own story, doesn't have their own dreams. You know, I interviewed a Palestinian, British Palestinian journalist recently for Navarra Media, and he had lost his sister and her seven children. Seven children. They're all still buried beneath rubble in Gaza. They all have names. They all had dreams. He told me what they wanted to pursue as careers, his kids. He has children here in the UK. They all have aspirations too. They're no different, by the way. My daughter is no more valuable than a little girl that was a month old buried under that rubble. And if you don't think that, it's because you're dehumanizing the victims of all of this. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. We're going to wrap up there. Thank you, Michael. Um, uh, great pleasure to talk to you tonight. Uh, also to say on this week's downstream on Sunday, that is the Palestinian journalist I was mentioning. An extraordinary interview. I hope you join us at 6pm on Sunday. Thank you all for tuning in. Come back on Monday for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.